Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which is ramping up its content for the New York Open. Um, the, Carl just released an episode with Tennis Sandgren and a couple others in the last week and more, I understand, are coming soon. So be sure to check out that podcast as well. Um, the New York Open is not something we're going to talk about this week, although probably next week, because there's been, as usual, a ton of tennis the last seven days. We're recording this on Monday, February 11th, so we've just wrapped up the Fed Cup quarterfinals and all the the lower ranks of Fed Cup ties, as well as three different ATP 250s. I believe this is the time of year that the ATP refers to as frantic February, since there's three tournaments a week and players are flying all over the world and you never know who's getting into what. It is pretty frantic. So let's start with the Fed Cup, definitely the, the site of the biggest stars playing this last weekend. And let's start with by focusing on the four World Group quarterfinals. Um, the big event of the weekend, at least for me, was the Romania-Czech Republic tie in Czech Republic. And for the first time in 10 years, apparently, the Czech Republic lost a Fed Cup tie at home, uh, largely because of Simona Halep, who knocked out um, Karolina Pliskova in a t- uh, rubber yesterday, and then Monica Nicolescu and Arena Camelia Begu won the, their doubles match against Siniakova and Krajikova, who are the top-ranked doubles team in the world. So pretty impressive upset there from Romania. And Carl, I'm wondering, we, we've seen Czech Republic dominate this event, I think the last two years and I mean, further back than that as well. Uh, they're now out, and we'll have to play a, a playoff just to stay in the world group. But Romania beating them, Simona Halep's um, making clear her commitment to the event. Does this make Romania the favorite to you now that they've knocked out the previous favorite? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they get France in the semis, and Halep should be a comfortable favorite in both her singles matches. And now they look like they have a pretty dynamic doubles team. Uh, with, with two very capable players on that doubles team. So uh, that that should be comfortable. And with uh, the other two semifinalists, uh, maybe I'm, I'm by naming them skipping ahead too far in our rundown of the quarterfinals this past weekend, but I, th- I think Romania would be the favorite against either of them in the final. Boy, I, I'm already salivating at the thought of Halep Sabalenka in the Fed Cup World Group final. Uh, Sabalenka was just dominating against Germany. I think she dropped a total of five games in two matches against Petkovic and Siegmund. So uh, clearly not the the highest level competition she'll expect to face in Fed Cup. But at the same time, she she didn't let her concentration slip just because she wasn't facing top ten players. Uh, so another really impressive performance from her. So. What what would you put the odds on that? If we do see Romania Belarus, I mean that it's it feels weird to be talking. Mean, Belarus just seems like such a uh, they spent so many years as a backwater with Azarenka and nobody else, uh, but now there's Sabalenka and Saznovich is a top thirty player. Azarenka is possibly available um, in the future, so it could be a really solid team. 
if they are the opponent in the final, uh, what do you set those odds at, Romania-Belarus? Yeah, it's as always, it'll depend on who's playing. If both teams are at full strength, I'd probably give Romania like a 53% chance, although the second singles uh, edge could go to Belarus, as you point out. And Azarenka even played the um, the dead doubles rubber in the in the tie this weekend. Yeah, if Azarenka has a has not even a great year, but a solid year that puts her back in top thirty status, if if she's the second singles player, then yikes! I mean, I like I like Mickey Buzarnescu as much as the next person, but um, that's that's a tough team to beat for one that you wouldn't have taken that seriously just a few years ago. Um, what about this USA-Australia tie? Um, this was the Ashley Barty show. She won both of her singles rubbers against Kennan and Madison Keys, uh, pretty easily against Madison Keys, as it turned out. And then she won the doubles, even without having Australian Open champion Sam Stozer on her side. Um, do you see that as a as pretty easy pickings for Belarus then um, to take down the Ashley Barty Australians? Well, I, I think Barty would have to win three ties, and she she did it in this, you know, against the U.S., against a pretty good U.S. team, uh, including a, a decent doubles team. So I I see Barty as capable of, of winning the whole Fed Cup, but she, she may not get much help. Yeah, it is it is a lot to ask of, of one player, especially against a, a force like Sabalenka. Um, and, you know, this is a format where you have to play that doubles rubber right after, or maybe a couple hours after you played your second singles, right? Yeah, exactly. That's all compressed into two days. It does make for more exciting doubles matches when it does go down to the fifth uh, the fifth rubber, because it, it, if it's a live fifth rubber, then it all relies on the doubles. And in the case of the... Romania Czech Republic tie you had not the the marquee players of the tie involved I mean still very good doubles players but it it is the sort of thing that people have come to love so much about Davis Cup and Fed Cup that the whole tie wasn't decided by Simona Halep or Karolina Pliskova it was decided by players that casual tennis fans aren't as familiar with yeah and it's well sometimes the doubles players in Fed Cup may not be marquee in the sense that they're not top singles players because they're great doubles players like with the Czech team. When when a team is deciding whether to use a top singles player, they don't have that calculation of I have to save them for their best of five match the next day. So you do see some single stars playing in decisive fifth rubber doubles matches in Fed Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Um so as we're we're edging toward the inevitable format discussion with Fed Cup, I mean, Fed Cup is still the way it's always been. I don't know how long it's been this exact format, but as long as I've been following Fed Cup closely, um, it's not going yet the direction of Davis Cup with the year-end showdown in Madrid or a, any one venue place, and it would be an even bigger leap for Fed Cup than for Davis Cup because Fed Cup is is split into World Group 1 and World Group 2. So at the beginning of the year, in, in Davis Cup before this year, there were 16 teams with a shot at winning the whole thing. In Fed Cup, with this World Group 1 and 2 format, only eight teams start the year with a shot at winning the Fed Cup. 
World Group 2, the next eight teams need to be promoted into having a chance next year. Group 1 teams need to be promoted into World Group 2 and then into World Group 1, so they're two years away. Group 2 teams are an additional year away. It's There's so many levels of competition that if you're in a group one or a group two country, then like I say, you're years away from potentially winning it. But even still, I was struck this weekend, there were a lot of top players competing. We had in, in this group one round, Robin in Poland had uh, Diana Jastrzemska, Kazakina, uh, Annette Kontavite. Um, in another one in Great Britain, you had Johanna Kanta, Maria Sakari, um, a couple other good players there too. So I wonder what you think, Carl. There's so many teams that have at least one or two good players and could field a decent doubles team. It, it, it feels to me like women might need the new format even more than the men do to give all of these lower-ranked teams a chance. I mean, do you think that it would be a good move for Fed Cup to follow in the steps of what we've seen from Davis Cup? Well, I think it's helpful to to separate a couple of questions here. Like if we rewind to before anyone heard of this new Davis Cup format, what was the best argument for why the world group in Davis Cup was twice as big? I'm not sure. I'm guessing that I I really don't know. I'd I'd like to have a a research person talking in my ear right now, but... um, but I think Fed Cup used to be 16, could be wrong about that, and then they changed it so that it took up less time on the schedule. So having eight teams in the beginning was just a move to make it possible for more players to take part, but not sure. Oh, I see, because and the WTA calendar is, is shorter, there's longer off-season, so there are fewer weeks available to, to give to Fed Cup, something like that. Right. Because it does, I mean... In 2019, it feels like the the number of people around the world who are playing at a level that makes them professional players, whatever that means, who are women versus men, is similar, uh, which maybe hasn't always been the case. And so it really does create this this very um, vertically hierarchical uh, tournament in Fed Cup in a way that the previous Davis Cup format wasn't to the same extent. It also meant there were some kind of questionable teams in the Davis Cup World Group in, in past years, and I guess in this year too. Um, so besides for the number of teams, what else do you think about the new Davis Cup format would, would work really well for Fed Cup? Well, just the fact that you'd have more teams with a chance of winning. Like A, a good example is the, the Danish team with Caroline Wozniacki, that she hasn't played a ton of Fed Cup, at least in recent years. And at this point, I totally understand why. Because if she had gone to Poland and played this round robin, maybe a great week with her and one of her her teammates could have gotten them promotion, which means they would have played World Group 2 next year. Uh, or they'd have a chance to play World Group 2 next year. Maybe they'd get in the draw for the 2021 Fed Cup. And if I'm Caroline Wozniacki right now, I don't care about the 2021 Fed Cup. That's a lot of commitment and a lot of ifs to go play some two-bit event uh, two rungs down in, in in Fed Cup. But if I get one of those wild cards or I can get myself in the top 16 to go play a year-end event, then that's a high-profile thing. Maybe if one of my teammates gets hot, I could go and win this thing. So what it does is the new format would give you an event that 
more countries can win and because more countries can win more players will show up and compete and it's not a huge problem for the wta i mean as i mentioned a lot of good players are taking part and some of the ones who aren't are injured or need the rest but it could tilt the scales even more and maybe even get someone like serena or maria sharapova to show up as well yeah i think we particularly feel the absence of teams that were playing in group one and would be just as legitimate uh, contenders in, in the knockout stage of world world group. And because it's such a, a vertical climb uh, and they're several years away, it, you can you can have a situation like you had with Spain and Davis Cup in recent years where a country just kind of falls out and then players lose even more interest and they fall f- further and it's it's they could be out of contention for the Fed Cup for a decade or more. Yeah, exactly. And that's something I I got into in one of the things I wrote on my blog this past week. I I made an attempt to uh, do better, a a better ranking system for Davis Cup teams by just looking at the ability of the the available players, not past Davis Cup results. And I I had forgotten what you mentioned, that Spain dropped into the Davis Cup Group 1. So I, I was baffled for a minute as to why their actual Davis Cup ranking was so low when, obviously, by any ranking system you can think of that would take into account the ability of the players they have to draw on, they're one of the best Davis Cup teams out there. I mean, there, there's no counter-argument to that. But as it is, they're not one of the top six seeds going in, while Belgium is um, Great Britain without Andy Murray, probably. Uh, they're one of the top six seeds. I mean, Spain is probably better than every one of the teams that has a top six seed, but largely because they dropped out of World Group and were still playing Group 1 three years ago, uh, they don't have that seed because of the way the Davis Cup rankings work. Yeah, and we've seen in in singles rankings and doubles rankings uh, on tour how once you drop down, you could still win a bunch of matches, but it's hard to get your ranking back. And similar on the team level in these team competitions. Yeah. You just don't get a lot of points. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and with the, the way that the Davis Cup rankings are done, and I'm, I'm guessing the Fed Cup ranking system is the same, it just doesn't matter as much uh, with every level being play in or relegation. Uh, it's It takes into account the last four years of results. So when you combine the fact that, that yeah, you get so many more points for playing at a higher level, plus the fact that f- four years ago events are, are playing a part, then... And yeah, it takes a long time to build your ranking back up. And that's one of the things I I wonder about with the difference between Davis Cup and Fed Cup as well is with Davis Cup, we have some teams that have been dominant or been in a position to be dominant for a long time. And most of the players who have made Spain so good have been around for this last decade or so. Um, Djokovic has been around to make Serbia a factor for a long time. So many of the top players on the men's side are, are veterans. But... In the women's game, a lot of the players I mentioned haven't been factors for that long. I mean, a year ago, if I was talking about Maria Sakari and Diana Yastrzemska, uh, then, or even Arena Sabalenka, then you wouldn't have thought of those as defining factors for a team the same way. But now, I mean, they're, they're the stars for their respective countries. So if you have a ranking system that goes back that far, then you're, you're ignoring a lot of the facts on the ground. 
which seems like a mistake if the goal is to create an event that's going to surface the best teams, give the best teams a chance to win. Yeah, we could have a 100-year ranking and have uh, GB, US, Australia as the top seeds every year. Yay, USA. Oh, and, and France. Sorry, France. Yeah, France is a is a big one. Um, yeah, so, Carl, what do you think about that with the Davis Cup rankings? They're playing a bigger part in than they have in the past because they they define the 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 pool draws for the the year end event. Uh, do you think that that's something that needs to be fixed? Like we should avoid situations where a, a country like Spain doesn't get a, a top seed in a group. I do. I I'm not sure about a system that would be ranking based on player rank, but at, at least making it much more recent weighted, like making it the last year or the last two years with the last year worth a lot more something that, rewards recent performance more um i mean you still have that potential problem of the team that wins then having a big edge the next year but i don't know if that's a problem i guess it could be an incentive to play well and and win the cup and it it certainly takes care of this problem of whatever was happening four years ago having very little relevance to the strength of the team now yeah i mean I, i i'm not sure what the Davis Cup's long-term plans are, like whether they're going to... I, I guess they're going to keep the same ranking system, but it would make sense to me just to use the results from the previous year's finals um, and just call that good. So at least... I mean, that would give t- players one more incentive to show up, even if they don't think they're going to win, if they might up their, their seating for the next year. Um, and it would at least be easy to understand and wouldn't rely too much on players who are retired or not participating anymore, that kind of thing. Is it, I, I agree it's probably not practical or appropriate to use player-specific ratings um, for, a, for a team event like this, but but yeah, it's it, lots of room for improvement. So we had, we had discussed flipping the script a little bit since I wrote a whole bunch of stuff on my blog this past week that... Carl wanted to dig into, so we're going to switch to a sort of modified 48 love, episode 48, kind of like 30 love situation, so... With about 48 minutes left, yeah. Do we really have 48 minutes left? Nah, 41. Okay, so... About does a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, about. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to hand over the, the host reins to Carl to lead us from here. Jeff just handed them over from Norway to New York, and it was instantaneous. It was incredible. The internet is amazing. Yeah. So I, th- this is really the culmination of a longstanding frustration that we often don't get to Jeff's posts on the show, and uh, it is the Tennis Abstract podcast, and he is Tennis Abstract on Twitter, and he's writing lots of very concrete tennis posts with, with stats, including stats from the match charting project he's made, so... Uh, this time early in the show, we're going to dive right into to some of these recent posts. And if you haven't read read them, you can try to make sense of them from what we discussed, but you might appreciate this more if you hit pause and go back to the blog and, and start reading. And you may not stop for a while because he's written a lot over the years and a lot of really good stuff. Thank you. So thank you. The 
the posts that we were just touching on, picking favorites with with better Davis Cup rankings. Uh, one thing I'm wondering is, you know, this is what we just discussed about like how strong are these teams if we look at the the players who are available, and you know, you have some pretty specific assumptions and sophisticated methods like you you assume that the top two doubles players have an 85 percent chance of showing up which feels about right i'm sure you actually counted how many showed up over the years um do you did you've done various davis cup forecasts in previous posts as well do things pretty much add up are teams the sum of their parts in terms of how they do relative to forecast by individual player strength I think so. I, I all I've done in the past is basically single match forecasts added together into into tie forecasts, which I mean like if if once we know who's going to play, I'll say, you know, here's the odds that Nadal beats Djokovic, here's the odds that Nadal beats Krajinovic and then add them up and see what the odds are that one team gets to three um three matches. Um but I mean, an, an, a similar question that would be another way of, of of answering yours is, are there players who perform differently at Davis Cup? And I mean, that's one of those things that the conventional wisdom seems to think there are these Davis Cup heroes and players like Tomas Burdich rack up a lot of their career uh, highlights in the event. But there isn't a lot of evidence that players, there are players who predictably do better at Davis Cup. Like the... Uh, occasional podcast host Petr Vets did a guest post on that at the Tennis Abstract blog a, a year or two ago and he was I think looking at Steve Darcy with Belgium who'd had some heroic wins there and even he who'd really outperformed recently in Davis Cup over the course of his career he pretty much did what you'd expect um, at Davis Cup so in to that extent I think just by once you know who the players are then that's a that's a sound of forecast as you're going to get. Um, as for forecasting at this point, like the numbers that I use to predict the odds that players would participate, like the 85% for doubles and 75% for singles, I totally made those up. It would be nice to delve into the records and see how often players actually did that, but but I didn't take that step. Uh, those numbers felt about right, and even if you tweak them a little bit, it didn't change the results that much. So it's really just an approximation and any forecast we make of a particular tie, how it's going to play out 10 months in advance, like it's hugely approximate. Yeah. The idea of someone outperforming in Davis cup makes me think of some of your work and other people's work on like outperforming in individual matchups too, that uh, even if there is something, it's going to be hard to detect. And there's so much information contained in all the other, in all the other results of that player that, it's unlikely that you'll find something meaningful in 20 Davis Cup matches out of hundreds of career matches. Yeah, and it, it's so easy to to just watch one match and and then let confirmation bias take over. Because if, if you see a player have an upset win in Davis Cup when he's 22, you can watch for the next 10 years, and every time he has a big upset win, you're like, wow, he's the Davis Cup hero. And every time he loses, you think, well... He's not quite that good. We didn't expect him to win. So you, you, one match can give you a story for a decade's worth of Davis Cup results. I also think we focus a lot on the 
thrilling five set matches and those aren't even always big upsets but they feel so heroic because of the the sort of physical investment in the match and we can really overweight a match like that yeah definitely so i i know the point of the post was mainly to to show what would be more sensible seeds and and to give some sense of uh who's the favorite heading into the to the finals but I, I also really just enjoyed this as like a fun ranking of country strength so i wanted to ask about a couple were you surprised that usa is fourth in elo and fourth in hardcore elo no um i mean part of it is just is is depth and part of it is doubles is um, in the new in the new Davis Cup Finals format, doubles is one of only three matches instead of one of five. And like, I've I've taken my share of digs against U.S. men's tennis players on this podcast. But if you've got the Bryan brothers and Jack Sock as a backup, or Mike Bryan and Jack Sock as your number one team, and Bob Bryan as a backup, then I mean you're not guaranteed to win that doubles rubber, but you're about as close as you can get. So you've got that plus two guys who on hard courts are maybe not top 20, but you've got Isner who's fringy top 10 and then another quality player. Then that's a good team. I mean, I would have been shocked if it were number two, but I mean, I think depth is, is so important. Uh, And that's one thing the U S team has, even if they don't, they don't have a big star. Yeah, and I guess maybe because we're so familiar with Isner and he's been around for a while, I'm I'm underselling him in my mind. Like if you have a top ten player right around the top ten, makes sense that you'd be in the top ten and even in the top five if you have a great doubles team. Um, you know, some some top singles players have no one for their team. The other one I was wondering about is Switzerland. Um, you know, they won with two players in 2014. They conceivably still have them, although I, I don't think anyone's expecting Federer Vavrinka to show up. You know, they could play both singles ties and doubles. I'm guessing their doubles ELO is not very good, despite having won Davis Cup and a gold medal. And Vavrinka's singles ELO has surely fallen, and Federer's has a bit too. But I don't know. I was still a little surprised to see them at 12th. Yeah, part of it is the doubles. I, I think... At this point, they're, they have almost no doubles ELO above just the entry-level 1,500. Um, so so they, they're really big underdogs in the doubles rubber. And as you say, Vavrinka isn't, at least according to ELO, he isn't the player he used to be. And there's, there's no third singles player, really. I mean, whoever it is is going to be a major underdog in any Davis Cup rubber. And then I guess India was a little higher than I expected at at 20th. Um, I mean, that's not that high. Or 20, 20th in Davis Cup rank and right on target for your surface rank. I, I know they have some good doubles players. Was that enough to lift it, or am I underrating their singles talent? I don't think so. It must be the doubles team. One thing I noticed with a lot of those, a, a lot of the teams that were sort of fringy for making the finals or not is – they have basically no doubles players. Uh, like the, I mean, this is an extreme, but the Chinese team, uh, which I think is dead, is thirtieth out of thirty. They had they had no one with a doubles elo, and I I think I was setting my standard for having qualifying elo really low, like having played in 
a tour level doubles match in the last uh, in the last fifty two weeks or year and a couple months or something. So a, yeah, a lot of those teams just don't have doubles players. So you you have a really feast or famine kind of situation with the doubles where you either have a tour regular who's going to be really good or you've got nobody. And in in practice, it doesn't work out that way because maybe a a team like Portugal, you send your two singles players out there and they can play credible doubles even if they don't do it very often. But India is definitely a level above that. And yeah, I guess that's enough. I mean, there's not huge gaps between those teams in the bottom half, but yeah, with with one out of three matches being doubles, it makes a big difference. With the eighteen teams and like compressed into this this one event, did your research and realization of who some of the players are likely to be, even if teams show up at full strength, did it, did it make you think we're going to have some bad matches? Um. Bad. And bad matchups between countries, just like I mean, we do in Davis old Davis Cup format too. But are there going to be a lot of blowouts? I would think so. Um, I didn't really think about that. I, I'll be curious to see what the actual draw looks like since that's coming out on Thursday. So I'll do another post after that and see what the what the odds look like. But I mean, some of the some of the teams that qualified to get in are great stories but not very good so i mean the fact that that columbia is in and i mean they've got a great doubles team but nothing really to speak of on singles um chile is another kind of fringy team like if they land in a in a pool with one of the unquestionably good teams like let's say they they landed in a pool with like france from the top six seeds and then spain then i mean they'll be lucky to win a single rubber so you can absolutely have some some big blowouts, but I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think that the doubles is a good equalizer and it's going to add a, 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 some randomness to the, the mix for some of those teams, especially like Columbia, who has such a good doubles team. Um, but yeah, with 18 teams, definitely um, you're going to end up with some pretty quickly finished ties. Yeah. And, you know, people love the world cup and there are some pretty, lopsided matches in the group stage so well and i guess also with 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 any world cup is a good analogy to this that if you do have chile playing spain then the expectation will be so low going in that if if christian garin gets to a tie break against rafa then i mean the crowd goes wild in santiago that's a huge win for chile um so obviously they're not going to win the tie but it could still be compelling just by a totally different standard. Yeah, that's true. All right, anything else uh, that really stood out to you about that post before we move on to another in your prolific week? (laughs) No, we can keep on going. All right, I'm going to do this just in the order that they appeared, so nothing too complicated. Uh, This one... I imagine the data was pretty easy to, to generate. You calculated that the match charting project has reached 5,000 matches. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And I don't think I updated the post yet, but about 15 matches later, we crossed 3 million shots. Which What, to what me, was the 3 million shot? I haven't looked. I, I don't even... I wrote down what match it was. I don't even remember what match it was. Um, it was one of the St. Petersburg quarterfinals, but I'll have to go back and figure out what the shot was. Probably a forced error. 
if, especially if it was a four-star, you should send the player who hit it some kind of prize, uh, a three millionth shot. Especially it's... if that player was Victoria Golubich. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it wouldn't have been a backhand then. Definitely not an error, no. So you've, you've said and you wrote that the, the pace is picking up. Could you quantify that? Like how, how many more matches are we on pace for this year than, than last year, roughly? Double this year, or... it might be double. Um, it's, I don't have those numbers handy, but just for one example, over this weekend, I think we added something like 25 matches in a little more than 48 hours. Um, and in the past, in, in we've been pretty steady actually since 2014 or 2015, adding about a thousand matches a year. So we got to 5,000 matches in about five years, but it's really ramped up, um, with the addition of a, a few new contributors who've been pretty prolific the last month or six weeks, two months, maybe. Um, so yeah, that might be right. They were at about double the same pace and you can tell just by, by looking at what matches recently have been charted. I mentioned in the post that I think over 80 Australian open matches were charted, which is, I mean, just unbelievable. Like that's one third of all the singles matches from the Australian open. Um, and then we already have a whole bunch of matches from St. Petersburg, the WTA event a couple weeks ago, as well as all the ATP events from this past week. Um, it's it's really staggering to see matches come in at a faster pace and get this more recent data almost as it's happening. Are people focusing on current matches then and not some of the classic uh, wish list matches? Mostly current matches, yeah. And that that's what I tend to focus on as well uh, during the regular season. And just to me, it's what I do when I watch tennis matches and I'm more inclined to watch whatever's happening right now or happened yesterday than... A classic match, but there's usually a couple people, um, including occasionally myself, who are charting older matches. So we're we're making some headway on Grand Slam semifinals. I think we're we've got all ATP Grand Slam semifinals back to 2004, um, which is a pretty cool subset. And we're I mean, getting a little further on that every week or two. So uh, mostly current matches. And you know, Jeff. Has such a is such a tennis hipster that he focused on the semifinal progress, but that's after a much uh, longer period of Grand Slam final progress, right? Yeah, we have almost every Grand Slam final back to 1980, and I think for men we have every Grand Slam final back to 1980. For women, we're missing two since 1986 or something, and that's just because we can't locate video. And then there's several more from the early 80s that we also can't find video for. But but yeah, that's been done for a year or more. Uh, that was um, another podcast friend, Edo Salati, who's been a, a, done a huge amount of work, both tracking down the video and dealing with really hard-to-watch older video footage. Uh, and just making sure that gets done. And he's been a big force behind the slam semifinals as well. Any, uh, you mentioned some, some grand slam finals that are on the wish list. Are, are there any other like almost complete sets or specific matches that you're frustrated you don't have? Cause maybe someone listening can fill in the gap. 
Well, there's one that I'm frustrated we don't have that I'm afraid no one can fill in the gap. We talked about this when it happened last year, but the uh, the WTA Shenzhen final, the first week of last season that was moved indoors at the last minute and thus not recorded in any form is the only Simona Halep match that we don't have charted back to 2015 or something and the only final of all of 2018 that we don't have charted. Uh, so anyone at the WTA, you probably can't help us, but I hope you're ashamed of yourselves. Um, and the other ones that were close on Masters finals, ATP Masters event finals back to 1990, um, we've been able to get so close because Tennis TV has been releasing a lot of those as part of their streaming service. So I think we only need maybe a couple dozen, maybe even less, and... Tennis TV still hasn't released anything from 1997 to 2000, so we're hoping that they'll do that and we can fill in those gaps. There's a few missing ones that even Tennis TV doesn't have from the early 90s, um, but we've scoured all sorts of sources for those. So, I mean, if you have an amazing video library of early 90s Masters Finals, I would love to hear from you. Uh, maybe they're out there somewhere, but at this point I'm not super optimistic. Yeah, have you heard from people with surprise stashes of video? Um, a couple times people have helped us out with a video here or there that wasn't online. I think that most of the people with cool stashes of videos have gotten them online in some form. Um, I think there's been a, a healthy trade in bootleg tennis video since well before the internet. And a lot of those videos have landed on YouTube or the equivalent sites around the world. So most of what's out there is already out there, but I'm hoping that, you know, maybe there, there's more to come. I guess there's, there's one account on YouTube that I think is getting their videos from some Australian, Australian television archive that's offline and just one by one converting them, which must be a lot of work and very time consuming. So that's the sort of initiative that it might take to really complete all these sets and get for instance, women's slams finals from the 1980s, which are almost impossible to find otherwise. Now, you have written stories using the data from the match charting project, and, and so have others. You, you wrote recently about potentially how to counter Novak Djokovic, or, or maybe at least have a better chance than any other method. And you've written about uh, the value of smashes relative to other shots and, and several others. As you've dug into the data, so more as, as an analyst user than as the creator of the project and, and charter, is there anything that you felt like, ah, oh, man, I wish I wish that were in the data. I wish they were charting that. Is there any regrets? Um, not a lot. I mean, every every regret is paired with sort of a an understanding of why I did it the way I did it in the first place. I mean the. One of the things that's frustrating, for instance, is we we code we code basically every shot and every serve in in threes. So a serve is either down the tee, down the middle, or down the tee, a body, or out wide. And then every shot is either down the middle, to the forehand side, or to the backhand side. And obviously you could divide that in any number of different ways. And I've seen other approaches that would divide the court into a lot more smaller segments. And... I made the choice really early on to keep it 
people are going to laugh if they've tried charting and had a hard time when I say it's it's simple because it's not simple, but I wanted to keep it as close to simple as possible so that ultimately people like myself could chart matches live. Um, I've seen other grids of tennis courts with the court divided into like 30 segments and there's no way you could do that live or maybe even do that at all using, uh, using all but the best video. So, I mean, one example is if you know a shot is coded as a body serve and a player hits a forehand return, like looking at the data, you don't know whether it was a serve to the forehand or a serve to the backhand that the player ran around. That would be really useful to know for, for some analysis. Um, And there's not any easy way to tell whether a shot is aggressive or defensive. I mean, that was one suggestion that I heard early on. But again, I have to think about people making those judgments, ideally in real time. And I just, I never saw that working. So I think what I was able to come up with in the beginning has stood the test of time pretty well. Um, Just accepting the fact that it's it, it's a it's a limited data set because it's collected by humans and there's a, a limit to how much humans can consistently um, categorize about every shot. Um, so so yeah, I mean the, the short answer is kinda, but but not really. I'm happy with the decisions I made in the beginning. Before we move on to the next post, you you've already mentioned some of the great contributors to the project, uh, including Ada, any others you want to call out? Well, I, I would, I would feel bad leaving anyone out. Um, if anyone wants to see the full list, there's almost a hundred people who've contributed and it's, it's at the, the bottom of the main match charting page. Um, but yeah, Ada was our champion contributor. I think he's nearing in on 700 matches. Um, Another guy who goes by Isaac in the project, he's almost up to 500 matches. There's a handful of others who've done over 100, including Jeff McFarland from Hidden Game of Tennis, who we've talked about a few times on the, on the podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few other people who've done over 100, and that just blows me away. Like, I, I don't really know what I expected when I first started this whole thing, but the idea that we'd have so many people who poured so many hours into it over the course of years like i don't think i ever expected it to to be this um this much uh, this significant of a data set so i mean a big thank you to everyone who's done anywhere from one to 700 matches 2019 i'm gonna make my, my debut on the list i don't see you on the list is that modesty yes and i I have charted a lot of matches more than anyone on the list and I would like I would like people not to compare themselves to my uh, my truly obsession driven number. You know, you said before that that's just how he watches live tennis and it was really awkward watching live tennis at the US Open with you because you kept like jerking your hands as if you were <laughs> typing into Excel but there was no computer in front of you. Yeah, it's awkward for me too. It's even worse. It's even worse when I'm alone. Imagine if if I'm just sitting next to some stranger and they see me doing that. <laughs> some weird court sighting gesture. <laughs> yeah. So I also wanted to talk about the breakpoint serve tendencies on the ATP Tour post. 
because that's really digging into tactics and that is using the match charting project. So very appropriate. Mm-hmm. So this was like where guys hit their serve and, and taking out body serves, which are uh, much less common than wide serves and T serves. And then how that compares on breakpoints to non-breakpoints and how successful they are on, on each type. And this is, this is like a really exciting use of the, of the charting project. And when I'm reading it, I'm my worst self, my skeptical self. Like, what about the matchups? Like, you're mashing up all their serves from all their matches, including against lefties and righties, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is just a concession we've got to make if we're going to try to get enough data to say something meaningful about the players, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess one thing you could do to to eliminate one of those issues and still maintain a decent data set for every player is to just take out lefties entirely. Um, I think you did that in... An, an article on second serve tendencies a few years ago. I think you went with only righty righty matchups, um, and I have sometimes done that as well, and will surely do that again. But on the other hand, part of the reason that I've always wanted to do a post like this is because Nadal has such a strong ad court tendency or breakpoint serve tendency. So it, it would seem wrong to talk about it to have this topic that could very well be about Nadal and then just thrown it all out of the data set entirely yeah i was thinking that you could keep everyone all the servers but have only opponents as right handers but you'd still lose some data there yeah um so yeah let's talk about nadal what do you find about what he does and how it's working for him well he hits a lot to the a lot of wide serves when he's serving in the ad court uh, which you don't need to run the numbers to know. I mean, I think we, we all have seen that. But it wasn't dramatically more than he normally does. He just really likes that wide serve in the ad court. So I, I did a couple an- analyses to just to crunch the numbers and get started, which is looking at how often people hit wide serves in the ad court and then how often they did it on break point so we could figure out which players are changing their tactics on break point. And... Nadal hits it, hits goes wide a little bit more often on break points than on non-break points, but not a lot. It looks like twenty-five percent more often, and the tour as a whole goes out wide ten percent more often on break points. So he's a little bit above average, but it's not a break point tendency; it's an ad court tendency in general. Yeah, and he he wins the point a lot less often when it goes in and that was the important qualifier there right right when i when i tried to dig into to whether the the tactics players were choosing were were good ones then yeah i looked at whether they were winning more points going out wide or going down the tee and that's exactly it that when they land their first serve or when he lands his first serve nadal is a lot better down the tee actually um like considerably better but he also is way more reliable making his first serve. So I didn't do an exact calculation on this, but he's a, he's about as effective overall if you take into account the frequency of second serve points and how he does on second serve points. Um, when the first if he could if he could just, I, mean, I don't know flip a switch and guarantee that his first serve goes in, then he should be serving down the tee more. But that switch doesn't exist, so he's 
he's just as smart to go with the more reliable, less risky serve uh, out wide, even if the first serve points don't go his way as much. In general, do wide serves go in more than two serves? No. Um, that That's what I looked at immediately after seeing the difference for Nadal. And, and it's it's within a percentage point or so for most players. Uh, there aren't many players with a big gap at all. I had actually expected more because I think in the article that you wrote a few years ago, you found on second serves that that going down the tee was a lot riskier. Um, and that definitely makes sense for second serves. I wouldn't have been surprised if that were the case for first serves as well. But in general, the first serve percentages are about the same. I wonder if there's also just like a built-in self-correcting mechanism, like guys just are optimizing for a certain first serve percentage and not necessarily for the overall winning percentage. So if they were missing way more T-serves, then they would just dial back the the speed on the T-serves until they were hitting them at around the same rate as the wide serves. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so who's the guy? You know, there's, there's some really fun findings, like for Federer fans, they'll love to know that on uh, wide serves and T-serves on breakpoints in the ad court, he wins them at exactly the same rate, which if you ignore the other considerations we just mentioned would make it seem like he is tactically optimal and, you know, the genius Roger Federer. Um, Not much you can do with that tactically if you're uh, Federer or his opponent, because it's already as it should be. Uh, There was one guy, though, who could potentially owe you a lot of money at the end of the season if he follows your advice. Who's that? Yeah, that's Kei Nishikori, who had the same uh, the same tendency as Nadal in that he wins a lot more uh, first serves down the tee than he does out wide. But unlike Nadal, he he makes more first serves down the tee. So, I mean, just so you didn't mention this, this, this is something that's come up on the podcast a few times, that players should be getting these percentages to be equal. Like the optimal strategy is if you're winning more T-serves than wide serves, then you need to keep hitting T-serves until those numbers even out. Uh, You're basically leaving points on the table if one is a lot better than the other and you keep going occasionally in the direction that's the the worst of the two. So Nishikori keeps going down the T. This difference of about 60% of wide first serves being points one and 70% of T first serves being points one, he responds to this by continuing to go wide just as often, um, even though I mean, that difference of 10 percentage points, it understates the, the situation because he makes more T first serves. So looking at the, I highlighted the 10 players we had the most data on. Um, there was a big gap for Nadal, which was about 12% between his wide winning percentage and his T winning percentage. A lot of players, like you mentioned, Federer's 0%. There's no difference at all. Djokovic is almost no difference. Murray is less than 2% difference. Nishikori, the percentage difference is 15%. I mean, no one else is even close to that. And the sample size is big enough that we're basically guaranteed this isn't some freak, um, th- this freak event coming out of randomness. He really is winning a lot more points down the tee. And as far as I can tell, he isn't doing anything differently because of it. Yeah, and I didn't mention the that you want the percentages to be equal. I guess I did um, 
in, in mentioning Federer being optimal because it is a little tricky because you have not just winning percentage but percentage that it goes in and by implication percentage of the time you avoid having to hit a second serve under pressure. But um, with Nishikori, where all factors point to he's he's doing it wrong, is there – I mean, I've watched a lot of Nishikori, but I can't say I've counted things up in my head. Could you think of something about his serves or his positioning after the serve or, or something else that would explain this weird gap? No, I don't know. I I will take the first opportunity when he's back on court and – watch with an eye on that. Like I, I was curious about that. And one thing I didn't do admittedly is, is look at his last several matches, because if, if this is a clear trend and if he is aware of it, maybe he has gotten a little better um, at the last couple slams or something. I, I'm guessing not, but, uh, but you never know. I mean, he certainly has smart people on his, on his uh, coaching team. So maybe they are spotting this, but it is important to remember that like you say, you haven't been watching him and counting these things up. It's really hard to do that because even uh, this 10 percentage point gap, it's not a ton of serves. I mean, and the flip side of that is there's only so many points he could gain by optimizing the tactics, but he's still winning 60% of those worst serves. So 60% versus 70%. If you watch that for a long time, you might pick it up, but these are only break points we're thinking of. So they're not coming up that often. So it, it might not even be one point in any individual match. It's a, it, it's a really hard, uh, it's a really hard trend to pick up in real time, which is, I mean, which is why we need the data and as many matches as possible. But, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious of any theories as to what he's doing or why he might be doing it. Yeah. I guess if you think of it as he had 366 break points in the sample in the ad court and uh, I don't know. So we're talking about a difference. So there's about 200 in each group if he's hitting them the same amount and or 180 as you wrote. And he there's a difference of 10, 15% in the winning percentage. So yeah, we're not, you, you would have to, it's one out of every, I don't know, 15 points that you would break points that you would even see something that could be a difference. And uh, I just made up 15, so please correct me. But it, 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 he's not going to face 15 break points in the ad court in a given match almost ever. So you're right. It's it, it's something that is much better suited to data than our own eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, and when you do break the numbers down like that, it, it it's easy to say, well, does it even matter that much? But then again, we are talking about the most important points. Like if we're talking about flipping the result of one point even every tournament, then in general, we would say, I don't really care that much about flipping one point in a tournament. But if you're flipping a, a break point, then I mean, that could be the match. Uh, that could, I mean, if you're in a sort of match that's, you know, 51% of points for one player, 49% for the other, then it could be one well-timed point that flips the result. So these, even though the number of points is small, the potential impact on a player's ranking, prize money, titles, all that stuff could be pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, I mean, I don't think you did in the post what their overall YT winning percentage is, but I, we could just see it pretty quickly from the match charting project. I wonder if he just has a problem with his wide serve in the ad court. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it might be worth doing another post just to 
look at some Nishikori serving tendencies and try to get a better grasp of all that. Yeah, and maybe one or two guys in particular have have feasted on that. Uh, even as we discussed earlier, the matchup problems. All right, we're we're close to the end of our hour, but I also want to talk about top seed us upsets in ATP 250s briefly, uh, because you noticed that all three of the top seeds in the 250s last week lost their first match, and that got you looking at how uh, often that happens relative to how often we'd expect it to happen at these lower-level tournaments. And it looks like more often than we'd expect to a significant degree, right? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was sure how this one was going to, to play out, which is part of the reason that I dug into the numbers. Is okay, So I, I looked at every... They're mostly 250s. I might have included a few 500s in the data set, but I was looking specifically at these tournaments where the top seed gets a buy and then someone who plays a first-round match plays them in the second round. And in those cases, then based on ELO at the time, the favorite should have won 81.5% of those matches, which sounds about right. I mean, you've got top seeds at tournaments against players who don't even get the eighth seed at these events, which is usually a pretty low standard. Um, so compared to that 81.5, then the favorites only, I'm putting only in air quotes, only won about 77% of those matches, which still sounds pretty good, but it's a pretty big data set. So that difference between 81.5 and 77% is almost definitely not just chance. So there, there's something going on here uh, that's, I mean, it, it's not giving us very many weeks like this where all three of the top seeds lose their first matches, but it, it's happening more often than than simple ELO would predict that players are showing up and these top seeds are showing up and losing their first matches. Now, there, there are other tournaments, I, I'm thinking specifically of Masters, that matter a lot more in terms of money and, and ranking points where you could also have the scenario of a player getting a bye playing someone in the second round who had won their first round match. I sort of remember you looking at that or someone looking at that. Do the players who had to fight their way through the first round outperform that match against the rested top seed? I'm not sure. I haven't done that. I I think it, it was it was something that was on my list a long time ago. And for a long time, I was avoiding topics like that because my pre-match predictions were having problems with the very best players. Like I had a pretty strong system for anyone outside the top four, but when you have when you're making predictions for like Nadal or Federer, then they're often going to say like ninety seven percent or ninety eight percent, but they're not as accurate just because you don't have that many examples of when they lose. I think I'm in a better situation now, so I could run that study, but that's why I've avoided it in the past. That would be interesting because I think one of the one of the natural things to suspect as a cause here is that the top seeds don't care that much. You know, they're they're the sort of player who might be considering skipping the event altogether, but then they decide to go maybe for an appearance fee or something. So if this is happening because they're not motivated, we would expect to not see the same thing at Masters where the top seeds are a lot more likely to be highly motivated. Yeah, the appearance fee really stuck out to me as a a likely explanation for a lot of these. Because if you're a 250, you are often shelling out a lot of your budget. And this is not me really having crunched the numbers, so caveat here. But based on looking at often the ranking of the top player or maybe top two players in these fields and 
the number of times they play tournaments like that one and and you know who else is in the field in the ranking drop off it just seems likely oh and also seeing the promotional material that the tournament puts out it seems yeah. like they're putting a whole lot of their budget into one or two guys and it's just stands i mean it's just basic uh, economic incentives that if you give someone that much incentive to just show up you're more likely to get someone when they're not at their healthiest and most motivated yeah definitely Another thing that struck me is the the probabilities for these guys in their first matches. Now, Kachanov was 80%, which is a, a strong favorite, but Fonini was 64% and Puy was 69%. And I think it's just a reminder of, like, you see that number one next to a name in a draw, and it seems really impressive. But at these levels, these are guys who are not... If you looked at sort of the ELO drop-off from the very top, they're, they're back in the pack. They... They could just lose because it's pretty close past the top 20 or something, top 15. Yeah, and with Pui especially, like, I'm not sure whether he would have been the number one seed if it weren't for the semifinalist points at the Australian Open. So, I mean, it, he's pretty shaky even by the standard of a number one seed at a 250. Uh, and the fact that these are best of three matches and not best of five matches, there's a, a, a certain randomness introduced there as well. Like I was looking at one of these tournaments. Maybe it was the Rotterdam draw for this week. But for I think it was Rotterdam that, that all 16 of the first round matches, the underdog had at least a 10% chance of winning. And that included wild cards, qualifiers, everybody. Like No one in the draw was strong enough to have a 90.1% chance of beating their first round opponent. Um, even though there are some pretty quality players there. So, so yeah, I mean, it, we would expect a certain number of losses in matches like this, is, no matter what. It's just sort of the, um, the oddity of having three of them happen in the same week that stuck out and made this worth studying at the moment. You know, that would be a... I need to think through the details, but that would be an interesting measure of tournament field that you could produce with the forecast or also retrospectively after you know what all the matchups were in the tournament of like what was the i don't know geometric mean or the median of the probability of the underdog in each match yeah and that and that's similar to something jeff mcfarland's doing at hidden game of tennis with his popcorn scores i don't think he's aggregating them to be any kind of tournament level measurement but popcorn scores are largely based on how close the matchup is i mean there's other factors in there like how good the players are, how interesting they are themselves. But one of the things that makes a match interesting, if you're deciding where to go on a, a first round day at the at the U.S. Open, one of the things you're going to think about is, is where am I likely to see a good match? And you're more likely to see a good match if the favorite has a 55% chance of winning than if the favorite has a 95% chance of winning. Um, it's not the only consideration, but it is it is one. So his popcorn scores are picking up some of that. Um and then, then I guess the question is what the likely matchups are in successive rounds and whether you're going to continue to have these close matchups or if you'll end up with blowouts in the quarterfinals or semifinals or something like that. Yeah, and I mean, some of that isn't to be blamed on the tournament when you have, when you have upsets, but it still sort of is a retrospective, like how close should this tournament have been, which maybe after the tournament's over, you just care how close was it. Um, but it just seemed like something fairly simple to to generate once all the forecasts are generated which was not simple at all but that's that's a story for another episode because we're past our hour mark thanks jeff 
Yeah, thank you, Carl. Thank you for um, for looking at all my posts and directing the conversation for our episode 48. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And in all likelihood, we'll be back next week in some form or other. And yeah, enjoy the week's tennis. Those of you in the New York area, go check out the New York Open. It's only only takes, what, like three and a half hours to get there by public transportation? Well, I mean, if you live in Uniondale, it probably takes you a few minutes, but otherwise it takes a while. So Tennis Abstract podcast listeners in Uniondale, breaking news, there's a tennis tournament in your neighborhood. Um, enjoy. Uh, I'd probably rather be in Buenos Aires and check that out instead of Uniondale, but sure. And if you're in Lots. New York City and you happen to be listening to this on Monday, there is a free tennis event in Manhattan at Le Poisson Rouge at 7.30 with three authors of recent tennis books, and I'll be there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Check out that great event. That'll put more pressure on me to edit this one and get it online before the event starts so you have time to listen to the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Check out all of Carl's 30 Love podcasts. And, yeah, that wraps up episode 48. And we'll see you next week.